This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh Lift up, check under the carpet Many try but few become Master of the mark market Well Paul Wilson, mate, thanks very much for uh, for making the time It's the first time we met But uh, I know you've got a heap on So uh, really appreciate you coming on Masters of the Market Pleasure to be here Now I thought we'd start with uh, with your former self A chartered accountant at EY Talk me through what that was like, what was going through your mind, and maybe what were some of the useful lessons you learned in that period of your life that have helped you as an investor since? Sure. Uh, it, w- it was a great time, and the, the first thing it taught me, though, was that uh, I didn't actually want to be an accountant, so <laughs> it, uh, it gave me the motivation to uh, think much longer term about what I really wanted to spend my business life doing. Um, it, it was a great place to get the fundamentals uh, to really understand in huge detail how does a PL and a balance sheet and a cash flow fit together. I was quite fortunate in that I was based in Brisbane and uh, after a year in audit, I moved into corporate finance and uh, being a small market, I got exposure to a broader range of activities than I otherwise would have. So modelling, valuations, forecasts, some venture capital raising, some IPO, perhaps some takeover defence. And so I got to uh, uh, see, uh, albeit with a light touch, a number of different areas, and uh, and I really enjoyed the, uh, the the venture capital side, raising uh, funds for businesses who are looking to grow. Uh, but another part of it was the takeover defence. It was at that stage uh, a little bit parochial. Queensland companies getting taken over, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to uh, to have a fund and some skills that you could help these companies grow to be the ones doing the taking over and going offshore. And, uh, and and thriving rather than just selling out early on. And so that was really the uh, the genesis for my whole journey of getting into uh, venture capital and private equity. And so talk us through post-PWC, off to MetLife. What was uh, was that experience over in the UK, I believe? Yeah, yeah it was the UK. So um, not long after I, uh, I qualified uh, as a chartered accountant, uh, I got a transfer over to London. Uh, and really I was, I, was, I was intentionally looking at that market because – this was back in the mid-1990s and, and venture capital and private equity in Australia was nascent to say the least, whereas it was really booming in the US, also uh, parts of Europe in particular in the UK. And so I thought, well, uh, I'll, I'll head over to London and uh, I'll try and join up with a private equity firm, learn as much as I can, have a good time, play some rugby and, uh, and then bring all that back to Australia. And I got a little bit lucky with MetLife. Um, Met is a huge US life insurance company. Even back in the 90s, they were managing 600 billion US dollars. And they gave us a billion dollar allocation for European private equity and venture capital. And there was only two of us on that team. Uh, And that was to invest in funds or individual opportunities or both? they, They wanted us to come up with a strategy. And, uh, and so luckily we were smart enough to know that we weren't smart enough to go head-to-head, uh, deal-by-deal with the locals. And so the, the competitive advantage we had, frankly, was size. And so we, we met with dozens and dozens of uh, private equity and venture capital funds across Europe and, and picked six who we thought were winners and that we could become, if not the largest, close to the largest investor in their fund – that gave us the leverage to then say, we'd like to co-invest on some of your deals with no fee and no carry. And that was my primary role, was to get to know all the deal leads, 
look at the uh, deals that they were working on and try and cherry pick for Met. And uh, so that worked really well. Uh, the funds uh, made returns of 50% per annum. Our direct investments made 90% per annum. It was a great time to be involved. And um, I was able to look at lots of different leaders and, uh, and say, well, I like your financial model, but I like your management equity. I like your legal diligence. I like this valuation technique and, and try and pull all of that together. So just that experience as a young investor must have been so invaluable, being able to copy best practice, if you like, from so many different industry participants. How do you go about balancing that out as you become more confident and, and more mature in your own investment strategy between coming up with your own IP versus copying other people's best practice, if you like? Sure. It was an evolution for me personally. So I had four years uh, working with MetLife and four years of, of harvesting IP, if you like, and uh, the, the timing worked out really nicely for me, both on a personal and professional level. Uh, I came back to Australia to be best man at a wedding early in 2000. And while I was in Australia, I, uh, I reached out and I met with most of the leaders in Australian private equity and venture capital at the time. And, uh, and I really thought uh, Bill Ferris and Joe Skrinsky uh, were a standout and they happened to be raising Champ One, which is a $500 million fund really the first material pool of capital in many ways uh, for, for buyouts in Australia. So, um, so the timing was right uh, and uh, I, I felt that I had built up a reasonable track record of, uh, of, of deal experience over in Europe. And so I, uh, I got on a plane, got home two weeks before the Olympics to Sydney and uh, that, was a, that was a great welcome to the city. You couldn't get much better. And um, then uh, set about recruiting a team and putting in place systems and processes to take uh, the, the business that Bill and Joe had established to another level. And you talked about your competitive advantage when you were at MetLife was having a, a big balance sheet. What was the competitive advantage that you and your team have been able to build uh, post going out on your, time, on, on your own? Sure. Uh, well, initially at Champ, it was, uh, it was really partly that I'd had that overseas experience and, and worked with so many uh, different businesses and, and advisors and banks and so on. So when, when I first got back to Australia, uh, banks weren't really lending to, to buyouts. It just wasn't a thing. Uh, whereas I had six years with Champ. By the time I uh, finished up there, there was 80 lenders active in the market and, and it was arguably driving a bit of uh, overheating in valuations and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it was an advantage having had that just hands-on experience. Um, and, uh, and a lot of that transfers through to today, but, but you continue to develop and grow over your time. And so uh, I, I've specialised in information technology for over a decade now, and, uh, and a lot of lessons along the way now, now shape uh, the way that we invest at Baylor. And so... If you subscribe to the idea there's no right or wrong way to invest, but a, a way to invest that suits different personality types, what is it about your personality type that, that suits tech investing or those sort of asymmetric return type opportunities? Sure. Uh, I think for me personally, uh, I recognise that I, I tend to do best if I can focus on a uh, specific addressable area to master. Uh, as opposed to trying to know everything about every every topic, I, I'd rather dig deep and become a subject matter expert in, in one area or a few areas and then have a high-level understanding about how everything fits together. And, uh, and for me, that's when I've had my best results. And in particular, in private companies, 
unlike a lot of public companies where you, you hear a management pitch or you can do a little bit of research, in, in private companies, you can get under the hood mm-hmm. in quite a lot of detail for weeks or months at a time. And, uh, and I really thrive on doing that. It sets you up to understand exactly what your thesis is, to develop a business plan uh, together with the management team, uh, and then execute on that plan going forward. And, and it might take a number of years to, to fully execute, but, uh, but that's where all of my best results have come from. Going right back to uh, the days at Champ, Ostar Pay Television, when, when we invested, uh, they'd invested over, a, uh, they'd burnt over a billion dollars in cash, uh, never printed positive EBITDA, uh, but we, uh, we got under the hood. We thought there was a, a, a useful business there. Uh, and within 18 months, we, we had it uh, generating $120 million in EBIT with the same management team. Uh, and it was a very successful uh, investment for us, uh, turning $65 million into 650 So um, uh, that, to me, uh, taught me a lot of lessons about uh, the value of uh, a subscription business model, about learning about the data in a business and, and how to, uh, to utilise it, uh, and uh, being prepared to form your own view. Uh, whereas the rest of the market really wasn't that enamoured at the time. It's a very li- different level of DD that VC guys or, or PE guys do on a company compared to listed equity fund managers. And I guess by nature, the lack of liquidity means once once you put money your money in, you're you're really stuck there. It's a, it's a bit like a marriage, isn't it? You've uh, you've you need to be sure you want to be there. Um, so that's been the thing that I've come across. Just the level of work done. From the private guys is very different to public listed equity guys. And it's funny you use the marriage analogy. I, I, I use that pretty much every time I'm talking with a new management team we're looking at partnering with because uh, you're right, once you're in, you're in. Mm. And uh, you tend to exit together. Uh, and that's the plan. So it, it's super important to to work out if, if you're a good fit. Yeah. Uh, and if you can work together. So one of the things that we like to do at Bailador is uh, – is, is, work out and commit to a three-year plan there's only one thing i'm certain of at the time and that is we won't exactly stick to the plan things change and uh and and we all acknowledge that but but what you're doing is you're you're laying out a pathway you are pulling together the financials and if you make some assumptions and if you say well if you believe this this is the result and, and can it work uh and and culturally you're just understanding if you can come to an agreement on points of view from um, perhaps different starting positions. So, yeah, it is, it is a lot more like a marriage. And what are some of the things you see when you meet with founders as head of Bailador? What are some of the things that are just red flags to you and you go, oh, this makes me nervous from the outset? What's a heuristic that other people may, may look to use? Uh, well, first of all, they've got to be honest. If we get a sense or, or evidence that people are – just not being straightforward, that's a big red flag. Um, I often uh, talk to my CEOs and say, I'd really like you to use the same threshold for bad news as good news. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't always just tell me the things that are going well. Uh, I really need to know the things that are risks or that, you know, you might be just a little worried about on the horizon. Um, and that, that's partly just to develop a, an honest relationship. But partly, sometimes we can, uh, we can help. We've often seen some of these things before or some of our other companies are experiencing it too and so we can get together and solve it. So, yeah, honesty is uh, a huge one for us. Um, And uh, I I would say a a willingness to continue to develop and grow and learn. Mm. Um, You know, it's a a fine line with founders. They 
have to be reasonably confident and and be uh, be somewhat natural risk takers. Um, but uh, the very best founders I've uh, I've come across continue to grow. They continue to learn. They continue to look for things that they can do better. And uh, and so uh, yeah, we particularly like those types of guys and and girls. And we've touched on Ballador Technology Investments already, but maybe just give us the helicopter view of that. I know you did a recent capital raising, but how many portfolio companies are you guys invest in and what sort of opportunities do you guys look to exploit? Sure. So uh, in terms of industry, we focus on information technology and, and within that it's primarily software uh, and we are uh, investing at the expansion stage. So what that means for us is uh, a business that typically has at least $5 million in recurring revenue They've proven their technology, proven their revenue model, proven their product market fit, which uh, is very important to us. They've got a, uh, a management team who's, who's driven the business to that level, so they obviously uh, have, have some ability. Uh, and, uh, and a business of that size usually is, is do, uh, generating enough data for us to start to form an opinion on it as a business uh, and the results it's producing rather than just an idea. So information technology expansion stage, we are usually backing founders who are still managing the business. And it can be a single founder or a founding team. Uh, and a lot of uh, what they are looking for when they're raising capital from us is, uh, is the ability to add A-graders to that management team to grow further. Uh, and a little bit of assistance along the way from people who've had experience growing businesses from that size to be uh, much, much larger, particularly uh, addressing international markets. So uh, when I mentioned that we focus on software, specifically it's primarily software as a service business model and uh, that's a model that can uh, be run globally from Australia. Uh, there's a number of successful companies uh, who've uh, executed and continue to execute on that and, uh, and there's a number in our portfolio that are doing it too. So, uh, so it, it's not global for global sake. The reason we talk about businesses that have the ability to go uh, and be successful internationally is they're addressing a huge market. So it's not good enough in tech these days to be a local champion. You need to be able to take on all comers. Uh, and you, if you are, have a particular strength in a niche, if you can do that on a global basis, well, that niche can be a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And so uh, what we're doing is, is really uh, providing capital and some help for those founders to drive their tech businesses to become much larger, usually internationally. And so what does high growth mean to you? It means different things for different people. What's a high growth business in terms of organic numbers look like to you? Sure. Uh, as a portfolio, we'd like our underlying revenue growth to be 25 to 30%. But that'll be made up of some who are growing at 50% plus uh, or even uh, over 100% in the case of one of our companies currently. Uh, and, uh, and, and you might find that there's one or two companies that are going a bit slower for a period of time. Uh, so, for example, you know, COVID is, is, uh, is something that really drove growth in some of our companies and slowed it down in a couple of others. And so uh, we have a portfolio generally of 10 companies, although... Uh, as of today, uh, I'd call it seven. We've announced uh, three realisations in the last two months. So um, that was one of the reasons uh, around some further capital raise. We've, uh, we've got some uh, cash on the balance sheet uh, to fund some new opportunities that we're very excited about. And at risk of oversimplifying, I know there's some listed equity managers that have a a very basic view that if a company's growing earnings at 20%, a 20% PE ratio is something... Semi-reasonable. Do you have sort of numbers, you know, 
understanding that total addressable market plays a big part. But when you're looking at companies that are growing 50% top line a year or 100%, what sort of multiples are you starting to say a ballpark for that sort of uh, company growing at those rates? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a natural question, although I'm often reluctant to uh, specify numbers. I, I will come back to for it. For the next time you're trying to squeeze down a founder? Well, <laughs> I thought going on the net. No, you said. Uh, no, the, the real reason is that there's so much goes into earning a multiple. So a, a lot of the software as a services businesses at, at this fast growth stage are not generating cash. Uh, and so the real skill is to understand uh, which ones deserve the multiples and which ones are going to make it in the long run. The good news is uh, it, it's, it's not just an art. There's a lot of science involved in a software as a service business. One of the reasons we focus on businesses that are $5 million plus, and it's often $10, $20 million, is that they have hundreds or thousands of customers uh, who are, are paying on a, a recurring basis to get access to the software platform, you, you can look at that data and you can start to determine uh, how much is it costing to add a customer to the platform? What margins are you getting after um, allowing for all the costs to serve? What's the payback period? Um, uh, churn is a super important metric. Uh, I would say, you know, we treat churn in its various forms is probably more important even than the top line gross number um, because uh, if you've got low logo churn uh, and, and revenue churn, it means that the customers are sticking with you. It means it, it implies that they're happy with the, the product. If you then take it one step further and look at uh, after allowing for customers who've dropped off but then adding back customers who are spending more or expanding the products that they're taking from you, if you can get that number above 100% net revenue retention over a period from a cohort, that means you've got a really terrific base to be growing from. And the best companies are getting net revenue retention of 110, 120, 130%. And, uh, and we've got one uh, company lined up uh, that uh, is looking at ASX listing later this year called Instacluster, who regularly produces numbers like that. Um, it's, it, it really is a great indication of, uh, of, of the customer experience, but also in terms of financial metrics, it really makes everything sing. Uh, and so just boiling it down a little bit further, if you synthesise those things together, you can get a, an implied lifetime value for your customer uh, and lifetime value as a, as a cost of acquisition uh, of customers. And so you really want to be seeing something that's getting you a return on your money of at least five times. Uh, maybe seven, maybe 10, and then you're getting into some great uh, unit economics, even though the business might be burning cash at a time. And so it's all about being able to go in, make sure you're comparing with apples with apples on those statistics and not just what the sort of management team flags up because everyone measures them differently. But it's when you bring all of that together, you can start to understand the really high quality companies that earn the right to be then valued on multiples of revenue and then you can compare with a cohort uh, amongst revenue growth. But, um, but for a, a high-quality SaaS business with a huge target addressable market and good unit economics, no problem uh, for it to be trading on 10 times revenue plus, to actually answer your question. <laughs> and one of the things when I think about these sorts of companies, tech companies or SaaS companies, 
just how much, how many costs they've been able to rip out for companies. You look at a zero and the number of bookkeepers that would have been required to do that work manually a generation ago. I mean, even something as simple as what I'm doing here with Chris John Invested, 20 years ago that would have required multiple camera people, potentially a sales team to try and get it on actual free-to-air TV. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have to have a deal with free-to-air TV to actually get it shown somewhere where anyone could see it. Would have, you know, potentially be 15, 20 people involved in something that can now be done by an individual or, or two or three people. When you look at the deflationary impact that these tech businesses are having all across the world, um, how does that marry up in a system with so much debt? Well, the first thing I'd say is um, we tend not to use debt in our companies. Uh, so, yeah, there's debt in the in the financial system more broadly, but for, for our particular companies at this stage, we, we tend not to use debt. Uh, we'll often put in place debt facilities, which we don't draw, just to give you a bit more buffer uh, in, uh, in in case there's bumpy air along the way. Uh, I guess what I mean by that is is, is if, if all these technologies are creating so much deflation, which is sort of inarguable, um, and there's so much existing debt on government balance sheets and private balance sheets, if we get a deflationary environment, that debt in real terms is going up even though it's staying the same. It's sort of a it's a spiral to insolvency if you have deflation with this much debt in the system. Considering this technological advancement is only going in one way and the deflationary impacts are only going to be going one way, do you sort of think – I mean, not that it's going to impact you, but broader – Broader market-wise, or the amount of debt in the overall system, do you sort of stop and think, how's that all going to pan out when there's so much debt in the system and we've got so many deflationary forces already occurring and they're only going to increase, if anything, in the, the coming decades? I, th- I think it's a great point and a great question, although uh, I'd go back to one of my earlier comments that I do best when I stick to my area of expertise and dig deep, and I, I don't think that's necessarily my area of expertise. Uh we're focused on companies that are taking advantage of big structural shifts and because of that they are going to thrive in whatever economic backdrop is presented to them. And uh, and that's one of the nice sort of uncorrelated things about our portfolio uh, is that you're, you're not really relying on the, the macro backdrop. You're, you're executing on a very specific plan in a very specific target addressable market and you're looking to get these companies to a billion dollar plus from five mil of revenue. Do you think at all about, say, the, the value of portfolio companies or the ability to exit and 10-year bond yields in the States and how that sort of impacts? Or again, is it really just focusing on companies that are growing strongly, have a big addressable market? It's really just zeroing in on that and letting the, the macro factors take care of themselves. Yeah, it really is that. Uh, we, we put out a little analysis piece uh, a month or two ago. We, we put out shareholder updates to the ASX uh, once a month and uh, we, we looked at what had been happening to tech valuations and, and, and part of that is being uh, driven by perceptions of, of bond yield and future bond yields. And what we found was that for, for our kind of comparable universe, uh, valuation multiples had gone up by about a third. So that's not even uh, valuations themselves, it's valuation multiples. Mm-hmm. So that's really rapid increase. Uh, and then we, we, we pulled apart our own valuation approach and we hadn't put up valuation multiples at all. Mm. Uh, and we think that's the right way for us to do it. We're, we're a public company, we're investing in private companies. We, uh, we tend to want to be able to tell investors the good news after it's already happened rather than crow about it too much. And so, you know, David Kirk, my co-founder and I have really had that approach from the very beginning 
uh, we've now had eight uh, cash realizations, partial or full, or all eight of them have been above the value that we're telling the market. And we're really proud of that. And uh, there's been 23 third-party transactions uh, in our portfolio companies. Every one of those 23 has been at or above. And so for us, it's about focusing on what we know. Don't get carried away about what the other market multiples are doing. But uh, we don't operate in a vacuum. One way we can respond is to realise some of the investments we've made. So we've sold three in this current environment of arguably elevated multiples. And so that's a way of getting your returns and getting some cash and, and proving that you've taken advantage of it. And what are some of the common mistakes you see retail investors make when they look to invest in technology companies? Uh, from my point of view, I, I think a lot of retail investors, uh, and, and this is a generalisation, yeah. so not, not everyone, but some retail investors uh, get a bit caught up in the story uh, and they'll invest in the story as opposed to what the data is actually saying or the financial results are, are, are producing. And, uh, and, and there's, there's been successful investments made that way. I, I just think as a, as a professional investor, it's not something you can necessarily count on to regularly produce returns. Uh, and so, you know, re- retail investors often will get caught up in the story. They'll perhaps overvalue brands that they have seen in their own um, personal life experiences uh, without necessarily understanding the business model and whether it's profitable and sustainably profitable. So there's there's a handful of things I've, I've listed lately that you know, I just sort of wonder if they're, they're really going to be able to produce the results that people expect. Uh, and then the final thing I would say is uh, the current valuations of uh, a number of companies imply perfect execution mm-hmm. over a number of years, and that's extremely rare. Uh, generally, the, the business doesn't go exactly as you want every single day you need to allow for bumpy air and some detours and things not not to go as expected. And so, just being being realistic about that is uh, is something else that some some retail investors don't always get right. It's the organic growth to the insurance on that. If you pay a really high multiple, but a company's growing at one hundred percent a year, I mean, within reason, the multiple doesn't matter a huge effect. If you just continue to grow at one hundred percent a year for five years, does it? Because after a while, that multiple's a lot lower than it was when you came on board. Is that sort of a an initial data point you can look at it? And you know as soon as that top line growth starts to to drop, you know that if you are in at a high multiple, you need to really reassess that and, and learn if you're comfortable still being there. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris. And um, it, it can be a bit of a trap to start looking just one year further out and say, well, it'll grow into its multiple. Yeah. And they can, uh, you know, as long as they, they can keep those growth rates up and be successful, they definitely can. To me, it's a matter of degrees. Uh, an investment's not going to be successful or not for me with a 10% change in entry valuation. Um, but it might be on a 100% change on entry valuation. So uh, it's it's more of a, a case of levels. Mm. And I think that mean reversion too is something that, you know, if you're a, an Aussie investor and you're investing in resource companies, by definition they mean revert. Commodity price goes up, because of that more supply comes on after 18 months that the company may revert. So I mean Fortescue's one out of the box, a different example. But by and large that's what happens. But a really good tech company doesn't have to mean revert because they do get these economies of scale. If they've got a big addressable market, they can keep compounding that growth very differently to a cyclical company. Is that sort of – you hear a lot of investors hold on to sort of single lines that give them comfort and letting your winners run. If you are letting your winners run, you want to make sure it's in a stock that's not 
going to mean revert like cyclical companies tend to. Is that fair? I think it's extremely fair. Uh, I think you're spot on. And uh, we have thought a lot about this topic at Bailador. Even last week we had an off-site for a couple of days and this was one area we were talking about. And and essentially we we formed the view to go stronger for longer on our favourite investments. Uh, And if you think about it, we, we spend our lives sourcing hundreds of deals and then diligencing several dozen a year that we like and then whittling that down and negotiating and maybe backing a couple working with the management teams and, and, and everything that involves. And if you've gone through all that and you've got a great team who you know and trust and you understand the business and its position in its market and, and it's got a huge target addressable market and, and this is the where you can get some real winners, if that market starts to grow even faster than you expected, which is happening in, in data, one of our companies, then why wouldn't you go stronger for longer? Uh, where you've got the advantage of all that time and information. Uh, and so um, it, it's been proven uh, repeatedly that some of these businesses can get very, very big, you know, not, not just a, a billion but multi-billion uh, dollar companies and, uh, and we think we've got at least a couple that are heading in that direction. And I've heard you say before that your best investment was the Rajasthan Royals, which is a uh, – it's an interesting thing to invest in. I mean, in, in hindsight um, – it makes perfect sense that it's been a brilliant investment, but before it launched, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been an obvious choice. It certainly wouldn't have been a consensus view. I wouldn't have thought that these sporting teams would blow up because sporting teams traditionally have been a bit of a graveyard for investors. Maybe talk us through that process, and maybe also how you can get comfortable being in in investment which would be non consensus. Sure, uh, I'll come back to the non consensus point. Uh, the the Royals has been. Uh, such a fascinating and fun and, and rewarding experience. You, you know, you could, you could talk about it for hours. It's often best done in a bar where you can uh, <laughs> be uh, confidential about some of the off-field stories too uh, from uh, from India. But to take it back to the beginning, uh, this was not a Baylor investment. It was when I was working with Lachlan Murdoch at Illyria. And um, I was involved in the setup uh, before there was an IPL, before there was a Royals, before anything, we were were approached with an idea that um, uh, you could set up a 2020 league in India because, and the the two key governing macro drivers for me on that one were um, 80% of world cricket revenue was coming via India. Uh, And uh, there'd just been a a poll where 80% of Indians said their favourite form of cricket was 2020. And so it's kind of like, well, if you put those two things together, that's not a bad start. Uh, but you need to make sure you're with the right people because a, a Rebel League had just started. Mm. And so the Indian Cricket Board had been kind of thinking about doing a 2020 league and it all got, got rushed into action in, in a matter of weeks. I mean, from, from first phone call to us to first uh, ball being bowled in the IPL was maybe eight weeks. And in that time, we'd set up our, our management teams, gone into the draft, bought players at the auction... Uh, colours, logo, song, you name it. It all just happened so fast. And that's got to be an example of a lot of gut feel there. I mean, oh, you, you can model that as much uh, as you want, but essentially that's just... For sure. And look, to be honest, um, one of the reasons it's been such a successful investment in terms of multiple of money is we we didn't we structured it so that we didn't need to put up very much capital at the beginning. Yeah. And the whole thing was kind of underpinned by a 10-year broadcast deal from Sony. And so you could see, well, if nothing else worked, you were going to have this base level of revenue 
and there was uh, there was contractual pass through of an equal share to every team of that broadcast revenue, as well as central sponsorship that came together. And uh, and it is the sort of business with a salary cap where once you're established and you've got a big enough market, um, uh, this is a non-consensus view, but a, a team like the Royals is a little bit like an infrastructure investment. You've got locked-in revenue with some optional upsides. You've got a locked-in cost base. You, you know within a pretty tight degree what your profit is going to be. Uh, the, the prize money generally goes through to the players, uh, but we get some kickers from sponsorship arrangements and things like that. But um, but it's a very, very predictable business for the most part, unless, of course, the whole tournament shuts down like it has this year. <laughs> yeah. But um, one of the keys, of course, is that you, you, you your addressable market is massive. And this is why I, I, I've been quoted before saying uh, a couple of years ago, the Rajasthan Royals made more profit than every Australian sporting team of every code put together. Wow. And uh, it's ignoring pokey revenue, but yeah. uh, in sporting revenue. Uh, and, uh, and the reason is it, it's a 1.4 billion addressable market in India. Uh, the, the tournament and the teams have done such a great job in making it popular across the spectrum of socioeconomic. Doesn't matter age, sex, income, geography within India, the IPL is is big. Uh, It's the single best way by a long way for brands to get access to that massive market. Consumer spend is growing. uh, And so uh, you've got a terrific backdrop backdrop there. Um, It hasn't always been smooth sailing, uh, even at the beginning when we went to the first auction, the Royals were, were different. We were an outlier in that we, um, we operated under a, uh, a money ball type approach, both for selecting our players and the way we operated the franchise. We, we had the view that we wanted to be profitable from day one, and we have been. Uh, but we, uh, we fronted up at the first auction, and, uh, and, and we weren't bidding they, they actually stopped the telecast at one point and came and scolded us for not, not bidding because it's all live. <laughs> And um, we ended up getting fined for not spending enough money at the auction, even though there was no rule about how much you had to spend. This is one of the things about doing business in India. Um, but we did buy Shane Warne and, uh, and we made him our captain coach. And, uh, and, and since then, and really born from that first season, we've developed a reputation for uh, nurturing and growing young players and giving them the opportunity. And, uh, and Warney was the perfect guy to do that. Uh, and he led our team to uh, to win the premiership in that first season, even though we spent um, only just over the sal- half the salary cap, way less than every other team. We had all these young Indians, and uh, Warney initially couldn't even quite uh, remember all their names, but he turned it to an advantage. He gave them <laughs> nicknames. He said, he said, you're the game changer. <laughs> uh, and so the young kid had run out there going, Warney told me I'm the game changer. Uh, and he'd get another one, you're the shining light. And then he'd just call them that, hey, shining light. And <laughs> <laughs> and they performed out of their skin, and so that was great. Um, but um, we've been kicked out of the competition twice. Uh, we've we've had to go through various court processes there. We've had our management team locked out of our own offices. Yeah. They've been arrested because the police weren't happy with the quality of the free tickets they were getting <laughs> to matches. But there's, I mean, there's a million stories about the Royals, but uh, it, it's been uh, tremendously valuable to me uh, as an investor and and someone in business to understand. Uh, about operating in that environment. Uh, I think there'll be tremendous opportunities going forward for Australian companies. Uh, a big chunk of the population's English-speaking. Uh, yeah, there's cultural differences, but there's a lot that's the same as well. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm super pleased to still be uh, on the board of the Royals. Could Ballador, as a listed company, could you have made that investment? 
Uh, not at the, not at the start. Not in that time frame. No. Uh, well, also we we don't do raw startups, yeah. and this this was literally a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. Uh, where where the Royals is at today? Uh, sure. Uh, it's um, it, it ticks a lot of the boxes, um, and uh, and and I think it is a very solid investment. But uh, I'd, I'd have to recuse myself from the committee and let David Kirk decide on that one. <laughs> So just getting back to what you said about India there being a potential fertile ground for investment going forward, look at their demographics and they're incredible, you know, particularly compared to China with one-child policy really giving them ageing demographics and the rest of the Western world with pretty horrible demographics as well. Uh, what else is it about India, other than the demographics, that make it an interesting place to invest capital? Oh, it's, it's a hugely diverse place um, with, with 1.4 billion people, so... You know anything I was looking at doing there uh, or investing there, I'd I'd want to understand. Well, where does it fit in geographically? Where does it fit in in terms of socio demographics? Um, but but anywhere you look, there's a huge market. Mm. Uh, and if it's not huge now, it probably will be soon at the rate of growth that things are taking place. And so that that's one of the things that is basically essential for for Bailador and our approach. If uh, if you're addressing a huge market. Uh, you don't necessarily have to win a big portion of it straight away to become successful. And, uh, and you give yourself that much more room to grow to be big, to be able to do it faster, and then to get valuation multiples that reflect that. So uh, yeah, the size of the addressable market is, is pretty exciting. And is the sophistication in tech there as, as good as what people say it is for a, you know, a, a lower socio economic country is it iphone saturations they're really high isn't it isn't it yeah as high as anywhere in the world yeah it's very very high uh, once again i i would just bring it down to looking at the specifics of each situation yeah. so um uh, how do i put this I'll, I'll use an example of uh data analysis you, you can't just say oh india is good at data analysis you, you you can say boy there's a predominance of good data analysts over there but then you have to work out, well, what's a good fit for what you actually need? Uh, what are the competitive dynamics in that particular area? And then just really you know, go through it in, in some detail. So I, I, I kind of shy away from generalising a bit, but, um, but there's definitely uh, opportunity to engage on, on tech at all, all sorts of levels and not just by saying, oh, well, it's a lower you know, cost per head to hire bodies over there. There, there are definitely elements where... Uh, where they're ahead, uh, but there's a lot of elements where, where Australia's ahead too. So it's a matter of understanding which ones are which. And if we take the focus away from India and just look more broadly in the SaaS and technology world, what are some of the trends that you're looking at now that you think that's really exciting for the next 10 years? Uh, I think what's happening with data is extremely exciting. Uh, so it's, it's not very difficult for all of us to understand that there's more data being generated than ever before uh, it's being collected, it's being manipulated, analysed, and, and almost every company of size out there is, is using uh, the data that it gathers in some way to uh, get more margin or to make customers stickier or to time that engagement right. There's so many different ways that, um, that companies can, can use the data. And um, uh, what we're finding is that it's... Uh, it's just creating all sorts of niche opportunities that you might not have originally thought of. Uh, I'll give you the example of our portfolio company, Instacluster. Instacluster has developed a platform where they're, they're world leaders in managing five different uh, open source database technologies. 
And, uh, and it's a very uh, technical uh, area. Uh, initially, I was like, oh, how are we going to explain this to investors? But the way I do explain it is there's, there's a huge appetite from uh, companies to, to benefit from their data. There's no single database which is fulfilling all their needs. Most corporates of size are having five, six, seven, eight different types of, of database. It's quite an investment and might not even be possible for that company to become world-leading in, in uh, all of those areas or they might not want to invest in the infrastructure. And so a company like Instacluster uh, can be a world leader in their five chosen open-source databases. Uh, open-source databases are, are growing hugely because of their ability to handle massive amounts of data uh, and the ability to manipulate that data. So the corporate uh, turns to uh, Instacluster to manage those. Now, Atlassian's done this, Sonos has done it, Toyota, there's a lot of big names. And, uh, and, and Insta was the company I was referencing before that consistently has net revenue retention above 100%. So what that means is once people start using them, they, they stay, but then even more than that, they say, you know what, I'm going to not use just one open source database technology that you're using, I'm going to use two or three, or I'm going to spin up more nodes. So they start paying more. And so you've got all these uh, really exciting uh, business models that are way below the radar. And most people wouldn't have any idea that they even exist, but they're creating opportunities for for companies coming out of Australia to take advantage of. I'll look forward to seeing it when it, it 10Xs and it hits the public markets and I'll be, uh, I'll be having a look through the IPO perspectives. So uh, that's brilliant, mate. Really appreciate it. It's great to give us an insight on Ballador, what you guys are looking at and a bit of a look into the future in tech. So uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.